let's start any any prayer request tonight I'm gonna mute everybody hi Fred I hope I'm gonna I'm gonna start I'm gonna mute everybody and and you know anytime you want to say something just jump on okay but um, I'm hoping this will help our our sound but any prayer requests for tonight I've got a couple of people that I'd like to ask your prayers for I just um, John Galton who's been a dear friend for a large part of my life he, he's the president of the International um, Militia for the Immaculata. It's a devotion to Mary. Um, it's a big, burly John Bunyan kind of figure. Is a uh, funny stories about him. This I can't take the time right now. But dear, dear friend, he, um, his wife went into the hospital to have a. I think what was not a difficult procedure, but they kept her in the hospital and she got pneumonia and ended up being there for four or five days. Um, she's home now. Uh, Mary Galton, John, um, dear, dear couple. He and Father Fessio. Father Fessio is the founder of Ignatius Press, which is international. He and Fessio grew up together, and and I um, got close to John when they asked me to um, help out with a, with a sabbatical. Um, so I, during my off year, I, I taught at USF um, to help out and just a good, just a wonderfully committed, um, devoted Catholic and tough-minded and wonderful sense of humor. Anyway, he and his wife, if you would pray, I'll include them. And then um, one of the members of the Ignatius Institute at USF, Ray Dennehy, who was a very tough-minded professor in philosophy there, is in uh, hospice. So I'll include him in our prayers too. So Let's start. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord, again for the gift of our life from you and the gift of yourself this morning in the Mass for your words. Um, these are all after days. Um, you're returning after um, rising from the dead and all the encounters with the disciples and amazing, amazing stuff. It's the one thing, it's the one thing the world turns hardest on that from the world's perspective, death's the end of it. To um, that anybody would say otherwise or even do anything differently, like rise from the dead, is a shocking thing. But that's at the center of our faith, and it's certainly at the center of the work we're reading. So um, I ask a special blessing on all of us to share in your risen life. That that all that we do go f going forward take seriously a rising, even if we don't see it always. Um, a different spirit comes to us through you in your risen life after the death. So something different. Help us hold on to that, not minimize it or take it for granted, um, to make it a part of our lives going forward, particularly now in this Easter season. I ask for a special blessing on John and Mary. Um, surround Mary with your protection. Help her in her recovery. Um, help her heal. Please do that. 
and ask um, for a special blessing for Ray Dennehy, a man of great courage all of his life, um, philosophy professor. He took on all the tough issues 35 years ago, contraceptions, abortion, homosexual marriages, all of it, transvestism, all of it, um, a great defender of the faith. Um, he spent a life getting ready for this moment, but still, let some great light come to him here as he approaches the end as a part of his preparation for leaving it. Um, watch over all of us. I ask a special blessing for the work that we're doing here. Help us all to be strengthened in our courage and our humility to take what we learn and make it living in our lives, um, particularly where you're opposed. Give us courage. Give light to our minds that we can bring you everywhere. Um, we offer these prayers in your name, Christ, our Lord. Amen. Um, I don't, let's see, I've got a couple of practical questions. I, I, I don't think I'm going to ask for an answer tonight, but, um, and I'm sorry I didn't get a note to you. I said I'd send it out this week. It's just been a really busy week. I, I think what I'm going to do, and I'll, and I'll write you tomorrow or the next day, I think what I'd like to do is cancel next week. We've got some major decisions to make um, about what we're going to do. You know that the tentative plan was to finish O'Connor and then do um, Tolkien's The Trilogy. We talked about doing G.K. Chesterton's Orthodoxy, which is a book I love, um, and then a gospel. And, um, and stop or do your will, whatever you guys... We can do anything except talk about Boethius. Um, whatever your will is, you know, just... <laughs> it was, Fran, was that you saying zip? <laughs> I didn't, I'm not sure if I got that gesture or not. Um, whatever your will, you know, if, if there's something I can help with, we can stop. Whatever your will. So I'll write a, in a couple of days just setting up this tentative schedule to bring all this to a close, and if you guys have any further suggestions, just let me know. Um, but what I'd like to do right now, and intentively, is cancel. I've got a talk next weekend, and the last one wore me out, and then classes. But I've got to think. I've got, I've got to think very seriously about what we're doing, and um, Suzanne's been pressing me forever to do Tolkien, and I've not read him. So it's, And I think from you ought to know from things I've said that I'm a very slow reader. I don't, I don't read quickly at all. So it would be a real undertaking. I'm glad to do it if, if, if it's something you guys would like to do. But I'd like to, I'm thinking about canceling next week and giving us a week to look at things and then see what we do. But tentatively, that's the plan. Do Tolkien, um, um, Chesterton's Orthodoxy, and a Gospel, okay? I would be surprised if we finish Violent Bear to Way tonight. I, I'm planning to get to the end of it, but I, 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 I don't want to press this, so I'm assuming we will cover the stuff that I want to cover tonight, and when we, when we do meet next time, we'll pick up the ending. I'll do a review, and what I'd like to do is take any questions you guys have 
um, looking back on it because I, I just think it's an, um, so important. It, it's even it's grown in its importance for me. When I set her next to Hemingway and Faulkner and Henry James and Conrad, I'm just shocked at what she deals with um, that these other writers didn't deal with. So we're being given a really, really rich work here. Um, anyway, those are my plans. So I'll get back to you guys in the next couple of days, okay? What I'd like to do t tonight is uh, pick up that Edwin Arlington Robinson poem. I, I think a lot of him, he's, he's, um, he's an undervalued poet. He was a great poet at the end of the century and um, did some remarkable poems. Um, New Englander, um, some of his poems I believe are genuinely prophetic. Um, Luke Havergal is to me one of the sharpest, darkest prophetic poems I know of in our time. I think we read it maybe a couple of years ago. Anyway, I've wanted to do this poem with you guys forever just because it's so casual. It's quaint, it's um, understated, it's, it, it's such a contrast to Flannery O'Connor. There's nothing explicitly religious about it. It's just a touching, very human poem. It's about death to old men reaching the end of their lives, but it's told from the point of view of a boy. So it, it's full of ironies. It's just very underspoken, but it's a lovely poem, and I thought it would be good to do it just to sort of ground everybody in our ordinary life, because we've been in we've been in pretty deep waters with Lear and Pericles and now Violent Beard Away. So let me start that poem. I'm just going to read a section of it at a time um, and ask you guys to go into the poetry folder and pick it out and read it. You can read it in an evening or two. It's, um, it's a little bit long, but it's, it's, it's easily readable. So, Edwin Arlington Robinson, Isaac and Archibald. Isaac and Archibald were two old men. I knew them, and I may have laughed at them a little, but I must have honored them, for they were old, and they were good to me. I do not think of either of them now without remembering, infallibly, a journey that I made one afternoon with Isaac to find out what Archibald was doing with his oats. It was high time those oats were cut, said Isaac, and he feared that Archibald, well, he could never feel quite sure of Archibald. Accordingly, the good old man invited me, that is, permitted me, to go along with him, and I, with a small boy's adhesiveness to competent old age, got up and went. I do not know that I cared over much for Archibald or anybody's oats, but Archibald was quite another thing, and Isaac yet another, and the world was wide and there was gladness everywhere. We walked together down the river road with all the warmth and wonder of the land around us and the wayside flash of leaves. And Isaac said the day was glorious, but somewhere at the end of the first mile, I found that I was figuring to find how long those ancient legs of his would keep the pace that he had set for them. The sun was hot and I was ready to sweat blood, but Isaac, for aught I could make of him, was cool to his hat band. So I said then, with a dry gasp of affable despair, Something about the scorching days we have in August 
without knowing it sometimes. But Isaac said, The day was like a dream, and praised the Lord, and talked about the breeze. I made a fair confession of the breeze and crowded casually on his thought, the nearness of a profitable nook that I could see. First I was half inclined to caution him that he was growing old, but something that was not compassion soon made plain the folly of all subterfuge. Isaac was old, but not so old as that. I'm going to stop here. It goes on. So I proposed without an overture that we be seated in the shade a while, and Isaac made no murmur, and they go on. But anyway, that's the beginning of Isaac and Archibald. Okay. Hold on, I'll be right back. Doc, could you, because it's on. Uh, we've got a handyman doing, taking care of something right now. Okay, let's let's take a look at um, the violent beard away. Let me read a couple of the critical perspectives that I've been wanting to get to you for a couple of weeks um, before we finish our work on her. Um, Flannery Cosner was an amazingly well-read um, author. She knew modern philosophy well. She knew St. Thomas well. So she was in a position to criticize modern philosophers because she had a realist philosophy behind her. Lots of moderns don't. Um, very few people pay attention to St. Thomas today because he belongs to the past. He's a medieval philosopher, sadly. But she took seriously that reading, so she had perspectives on the modern world that a lot of people don't have, certainly a lot of modern writers. Um, Hemingway could never have gone where she went in his writings, never, never. She had an understanding of justice and grace and mercy and violence and sin that's rare among modern writers. Um, Tracy, to go a little bit to your question, there's a lot of modern writers who are um, capable of rendering violence um, Tracy sent a note, I don't want to go into it here, but just briefly to touch on it. There's lots of people who deal with violence. You know that, and I think most of us know it. If you look at films today, a great majority of films deal with horror explicitly. What they're doing is appealing to sensations, to excite people, scare them, horrify them. And major writers do the same thing. It, 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 I think they do that because they believe that if they're doing it, it shows how realistic they are. That they don't sentimentalize the world or fantasize about the world. They look at the world as it is. I think that's a lie. Flannery O'Connor would say it's a lie. The difference between O'Connor and these other writers is that she's honest in her rendering of violence. We all know that from the violent beard away. But like, <laughs> like Boethius, um, she also knows that um, there's more going on than meets the eye. And um, her belief as a Catholic was that nobody could be a Catholic who didn't have a prophetic way of looking at the world. So the, the challenge for her was always to see beyond what was immediately present to us, just like it was for Boethius or Shakespeare in Lear, let's say. 
or Moby Dick. I mean, we can pick the Dostoevsky. To 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 see in the scene present to our senses something more going on. Um, so she says uh, some of her some of her comments. Um, I, I've recommended this book before, Mystery and Manners, I think is the f one of the finest collections of, uh, of an artist reflecting on the work, the task of an artist. They're short, they're very readable, they're profound, they're reflections on her struggles as an artist and what, you know, what she learned and what she believed. They're, they're just so good. So I'm going to take some of her uh, comments just to, um, so you can have these in your mind when you think about her. She says, the modern novelist merges the reader in the experience. He tends to raise the passion he touches upon. If he's a good novelist, he raises them to effect by their order and clarity a new experience, the total effect, which is not in itself sensuous or simply of the moment. So, like most artists, um, she saw the importance of rendering something concretely as it is. One of the great gifts of poets are, is their power of observation. They could, like a scientist, exactly like a scientist, that they can take a thing, describe it faithfully, but they will go where scientists can't because they're going to go to another order through that, whatever that thing is before them. She said of art, the habit of art is re the, the habit of art is reason making. That's from St. Thomas. Every work of art involves reason. The modern, the modern artist would like to believe that it happens in spite of reason, that you're inspired or drug-induced or hallucinatory, or the only way you can get out of the shadow of this world is through hallucinations or going beyond it. She says that all art is reason-making, that reason's involved in it. And by that, she does not mean a mechanical kind of reason. She does not mean a technological, mechanical kind of reason. She means an intuitive reason, something that's touched with something, but is fundamentally rational. There's a meaning to things. The artist can help bring them out. It's a new way of perceiving, she said. She said the, uh, the writer's characterized by his vision. He's an observer. He respects mystery. One of the most telling comments she said is he is the real he is a realist of distances. Images that will connect two points. The artist sees something before him, but it intersects with something more beyond, which is hard to put into words. It's prophetic. It's seeing near things with their extension of meaning far away. So, the thing in front of us, it can be a girl, a four-year-old girl pricking herself. It can be Hopkins watching, you know, a, a bird. It can be O'Connor um, describing a boy that um, is taking another boy out to, in the lake, you know, with no intention of killing him and ending up killing him, and without even knowing it, baptizing him. That every event has an analogical meaning, some higher meaning. The, the great poets are the ones who can start with the ordinary thing in front of us and, and take it to an extended meaning, something beyond. Her art was expressly called grotesque comedy. She saw Thomas Mann as the um, great artist, 
artist of what she called the anti-bourgeois style. Writers like Thomas Mann, Melville, in some ways Hawthorne, certainly her, um, are doing what they can to break through the bourgeois mentality that all of us have been raised in. Um, the Protestant world says the sign of your salvation, your being among the saved, is the neat, tidy life. You, the sacraments are gone. The evidence of, that you're saved is that you live this proper, decorous life. You follow this code of behavior. We've been talking about that since we read um, Hawthorne. The grotesque comic writer like Dante distorts things. It takes us past the surface of respectability so we can see the inner meaning of things. Because the danger for all of us is we can get comfortable in that bourgeois life. We've got things the way we want them. We're comfortable. All these are signs that we're saved among the elect. She said the world is under construction. That violent moments are represent um, um, evil and grace meeting. Somebody's doing something and it's going to bring that person to a point of choice. Violence leaves us facing ourselves, wondering whether we're receiving a grace or not. Um, she says, um, I have found in short from reading my own writing that my subject in fiction is the action of grace in territory largely held by the devil. She's looking at a world in which the devil's in charge and trying to find moments where Christ enters that world. She said of Conrad, I mean, she loved modern writers because she went to school in them. She was like a, a girl who grew up knowing it was going to be her calling to write. So she read modern writers to learn from them. Joseph Conrad, Henry James, um, Faulkner, um, all of them. She said of the novelist and the believer, when Conrad, in one of the prefaces to, I think it was The Nigger of Narcissus, Conrad said that his most important aim was to make us see, and that was everything. That his aim as a writer was to make us see, and that meant not just on surfaces, to do what O'Connor's talking about, to look at an event that's right in front of us and see that there are other things going on. So he said his aim as a novelist, it had one end, was to make people see, and that was everything. So O'Connor's reflecting on Conrad when she says, when Conrad said that his aim as an artist was to render the highest possible justice to the visible universe, he was speaking with the novelist's surest instinct. The artist penetrates the concrete world in order to find at its depths the image of its source, the image of ultimate reality. She believed in God. She believed that there was nothing going on that didn't involve God. Her task as a writer was to take every event and see if she could see its source, the ultimate reality, the way in which God was interacting. And you know, I mean, this goes back to Boethius, it goes back to all the people in reading. Um, that means that as a, as a writer, she wanted to, she assumed people's free wills, that people are free to do it, to make whatever choices they make. 
The question for her is, could she see in any action that somebody took the ultimate source of reality, which was God? The artist penetrates the concrete world in order to find at its depths the image of its source, the image of ultimate reality. This in no way hinders his perception of evil, but rather sharpens it, for only when the natural world is seen as good does evil become intelligible as a distinct as a destructive force and a necessary result of our freedom. What he did was sharpen her perceptions, not dull them. Those are some of her comments. I could read more. Um, I don't know if you guys are going on the site to check in, but today I, 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 um, I put some of the files. I, there's one called, I think it's Flannery O'Connor Critical Perspective. So it's got a number of quotes and some more that I'm, I'm not reading, but it's, it's only a few pages long, and I think you'll find them interesting. I also put the notes in there. And then I also included um, a passage from... Dante's Paradiso. Um, you're, you're probably not going to remember, but we're doing the Paradiso at Seas right now. And we came across this passage that I'd forgotten was there, in which Dante is dealing directly with that passage from Michael. Um, or, sorry, from Matthew. Um, from the days of John the Baptist till now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violent bear it away. That's the passage from which O'Connor takes um, the title of her book. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, and the violent bear it away. In Canto 22, I sent a copy of it to you all in the Paradiso. Dante has this, and I, I'm just going to read it, because um, I don't want to take up the question now. I want to get us to the book and look at some things and then come back to the that title and what it means. Now remember, in Dante, this passage is occurring in heaven, in paradise. The title um, for O'Connor's work is taken from Matthew, but the setting of her, her story is the earth and this conflict between good and evil, what's going on between Raber and Tarwater. It's pretty dark. So the, the context are sharply contrasting with each other. One's in heaven, one's in a dark infernal world here. But Dante has this. This is in Canto 20. Regnum silorum suffereth violence, gladly from fervent love, from vibrant hope. Only these powers can defeat God's will, not in the way one man conquers another, for that will wills its own defeat. And so defeated, it defeats through its own mercy. And then she goes on, or he, Dante goes on to describe the eyes of the eagle. But anyway, I included that in in our in our uh, in our um, Fanner Connor folder. So take a look at it there, because I would love to have your thoughts on, you know, the the title um, with Dante in mind, and also with Flannery O'Connor's title in mind. Okay. So um, what I'd like to do now is turn to the book before I do any. Any questions or comments um, up to this point? There's two passages, two sections from our reading tonight that I want to um, look at closely with you guys for our talk tonight. But any comments or questions or...
Bob, just a comment. Oh. I have struggled with this book just like I did. Who's the hideous Southern author you made us read? Faulkner? Yeah, like Faulkner. Hideous. Um, Mark, would you, would you get real, please? God. God. This is something that it was like a TV show that you didn't, you turn on a TV and there's something on it. You just have no desire whatsoever to watch. So you change the channel. You're just like, I'm not going to watch whatever this is. This book, I don't know what it was. It had, I had zero interest in reading it. As you're reading through it, you're like, why am I even reading this? It's that. And granted, there's something about it I'm missing. I'm, I'm not saying anything other than, but I mean, it, this is a struggle to get through. Thank I God. Mean, I mean, just, just as a comment, I'm not saying anything other than, Yeah. and, and I, don't, I don't know why. I can't put my finger on as to why. It wasn't necessarily the plot. Or the characters, you know, there's something in it that was just, yeah, it, it was, it was just like seeing something on TV. You're like, no, I'm not watching that. Click. And if I, if I could have done that, I would have. Barbara, go I ahead. Why? Yeah, right. Barbara, go ahead. I want to get to Tracy because I want to hear her comment because I, but by the way, I mean, I, you know, we we've been over this a lot. You know, works of literature are not always easy to understand, and I, I mean, I'm trusting that. All of you know that deeply by now because we've read a lot of works together, and 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 I know that um, most of you, many of you, approach the work shaking your head and thinking, "What does this mean?" I I remember Tracy, I remember your comment the second week. I think it was the second week into Lear, and you're going, "This is just garbledy good. Why am I reading this? Because it was making no sense to you." And then a week and a half later, it it's it's as if you, you know, a great revelation took place, and it's like the book exploded on you and was full of meaning. I mean, that's part of the beauty of literature to me is that it, it can present our world and um, take us back to us and, um, with new eyes, seeing the things we didn't before. But anyway, Barbara, go ahead. You, you had a, sorry, you had a comment. I, my comment is just that I didn't have trouble reading it because it, it moved fairly quickly. The problem I had is it's so full of turmoil. There is no rest. Each one of the characters is, it's like they're running in the forest and the wolves are right behind them and there's <laughs> Always. just no, yes. you can't, you know, you can't take a breath. They don't stop and see a sunset or a, there's nothing good, not good, sensually pleasing in what they have. Yeah. And that's what made it difficult for me to read. And so if she is, um, if all this turmoil is used to display the truth, I'm missing the truth. <laughs> I'm hoping that you um, unearth it for me. Well, I'm trying. I'm. I all I. Can, I, I, I hope I can succeed in some way. I, I want to get to Tracy, but before I do, uh, a couple of comments here in response to both of you. One is, Flannery O'Connor in her letters said that. She would constantly get letters from these people, most of them older women, who would say to her, why don't you write about nice things? Why are you writing about all these dark things all the time? And they're basically saying what, what you said. To, 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 to put a cutting on edge on this, that I, I mean, honestly, I don't know how else to do it. You remember that Raber's wish is 
to, when he looks at uh, Lucette, uh, we're going to go to that scene because that's one of those, I wanted to go back and pick that up. He looks at Lucette and one of his responses is, another child? Um, he would like to take her and take her to a sunset place where there's nothing but peace and quiet where they can enjoy themselves. One of the things, we had two things to hold on to here. One is, we know from our faith, this is not me, this is Christ, the, 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 the topos, the theme of contemptus mundi, to hate the world, is from Christ. He said, unless you hate this world, you'll have no part with me. That the world, he, these are his words, so O'Connor's working off of him. The world is under construction. The one in charge of the world is the devil. So he's always at work, relentless, working to get souls. That's just a fact. I mean, if, if, if we take our faith seriously, lots of people don't share that faith. As a matter of fact, lots of people share the bourgeois faith that the book is um, critiquing. The, the, the Raber's whole position rests on the belief that we can create a sunset world for ourselves and be happy and have our mansions and our comfort and our security and we'd be okay. That's the secular idea. That's the bourgeois ideal. She's representing that in Raber and showing the dangers of that for him, for Tarwater, for everybody, for Bishop. So in one sense, um, what you're, I mean, the way you describe it is perfect because I don't know of any of us, um, I've said this over and over again, and I mean it sincerely. I mean, I don't know of any of us who, I know, of, I don't know that I know of anybody like St. Francis who wanted to embrace the cross. I think most of us want to run away from it, that we would rather have comfort, security, and, you know, a life free of fears. But that's not the way the world is. And one of the temptations of the world, certainly if the devil's in charge, is to have our way, to have what we want. It's come, Father Flynn used to say that forever. What we want under what conditions right now, to have our will. Um, so the book is taking that on, head on, head on. Um, if you remember Hemingway's Old Man of the Sea, he couldn't rest. I mean, we read a short story, you know, or it's a short novel, about the same sort of thing, but it, it is nothing next to what O'Connor's dealing with, because O'Connor's dealing with something demonic. We're much closer to Ivan in the Brothers Karamazov than we are to anything in Conrad or Hemingway or, you know, any of the modern writers. So, it is a really dark world, um, because from one perspective, the world is dark. The devil's in charge. He's always working. And, and the way in which he works is usually through those things that we most want. Comfort, security, quiet. Don't want to be bothered. I don't want to be upset. I don't want to suffer. I want to have things my way. <laughs> so it's a troubling... Tracy, you go ahead. I think you had a... I think you had a... I, th I thought you were responding to Mark's comment. No? Specifically? No, I was just uh, <laughs> chuckling, I guess. And I uh, never question why we're reading something or that I'm reading it. But yes, Lear, the first time, it was just like I couldn't understand the word, the meaning of the words strung together, you know, <laughs> until I read it a second time. But this one has been... Um, it's going to sound weird, but comforting. I, I wanted to go. The reason I wanted to call and you. You feel like that's how I feel. Yeah. 
Could, you know? Get, take a minute with this, will you, um, Tracy? I got a, an email from Tracy a day or two ago where she said she was reading O'Connor and I think reading some other works with a maybe a reading group or something, I'm not sure, but... And she she was re reading writers who were dealing with violence, but um, she found herself moving through those books and not wanting to finish them. Yeah, whatever was going on. But her comment was she wanted to finish O'Connor. Tracy, what can you comment? I mean, with Mark's question and Barbara's comment on in, in your mind, what what can you explain? Can you add anything to that that you sent in your email? You know, I uh, this was for a book club, and we talked about it yesterday. And one of my friends um, said that it was, you know, like she said that the book she hated the book too, and it um, that it was sorry, that there's violence, yes, you know, darkness, but it's how the characters handle the darkness, which I thought was an interesting way to put it. You know, and she's a non-practicing Protestant, you know, but I think you put it much better. <laughs> Uh, just now, um, that O'Connor is um, uh, taking every event and seeing if uh, she could see its source. Um, so I think that's what's missing mm -hmm. from that contemporary book. It's just like a, like I described it as a void. It's just a void. It's like yeah. you, Mark, yeah. like you're watching this on TV, you're watching the news, and you're just like, I don't want to... I don't, there's no point in hearing this. Right, right. And the whole story is that way because it's just there's just an yep. emptiness. Yep, 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 yep. Let's 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 get to the book. A couple of things that I just want everybody to keep in mind. I'm going to go to these two sections and see if I can't focus our attention on those. Um, but I but I'd like to recall a couple of things they said. I mentioned the theme of doubling last week and um, made this point. I'm not sure that I made it clearly enough or that you guys understood it well enough, and, um, but it, to me it's not a small thing. If you, if you, it's, it seems to me it's hard to read this book without becoming aware that in so many ways young tar water resembles old tar water. Allusions are made to it constantly. Raber resembles old Tarwater. There are things about his look, things about his gesture, his stubbornness, the, the fact that he can't get this thing from the past out of his mind. It's he, Old Tarwater is present. Bishop has a look, old man, young, you know, body. The woman who was the, the um, social worker, there's a description late in the book of her looking at Bishop and being horrified. She said she could not look on that face it so disturbed her, she ran off. She, she, there was no way in which she could stand looking at a face like that. And in some ways, the face resembled old Tarwater. She was talking about young Tarwater, wasn't she? Not Young, was it? I can't even remember now. Yeah, was it? she didn't want to take him home. Yeah, yeah. Um, the point that I wanted to make is that... that it seems to me one of the things that the book is asking us to see is that this imprint of the old Adam and a Christ in conflict is present in everybody. We see that look. Um, I'm, I'm 
pressing at this because it's not, I mean, I'm, I'm offering this as a thought. I'm struck by all the doubling illusions, so I'm trying to make sense of them myself. I think it's O'Connor's way of saying we're all rooted. Our roots go back to Adam, but there's this conflict between the old man in every one of us and the new man, this new life. That's almost explicit in the book. The old man doing battle with something new being offered. Whether, will he be open to graces? Or do any of us get stubborn and set in our ways in the past that we're not open to whatever it is God offers, particularly through challenge or difficulties or sufferings? We want to have the way we want to have the world the way we want it. So hold on to that theme because it, it seems to me that it's just pronounced in the book, particularly in the fact that it's old tar water and young tar water and the old man, and the fact that there are these constant statements um, describing the resemblances between these characters. I wanted to ask everybody if you saw the resemblances between this and Dostoevsky, because when I read O'Connor, I find her closest mentor to be Dostoevsky, not Conrad or Henry James. Or She loved Faulkner. Um, but I'm trusting that everybody sees the resemblance to um, Ivan, because in our reading, Dostoevsky's Brothers is probably one of the most modern in the sense that Dostoevsky is showing Mother Russia um, being infected by enlightenment, 18th century, and Voltaire, all the modern intellectuals of the 18th century, who believe that religion was superstitious and wanted to get rid of it. All of them believe that reason, if people use reason well enough, could, could help us create this secular world. That's our modern secular philosophy. In Brothers, Dostoevsky is aware that how those Enlightenment ideas are crippling Mother Russia. That, that um, unlike other Western countries, this isn't something that developed over time. It happened overnight. They were all imported when Peter wanted to change Russia and make it modern. So there was this um, radical kind of dislocation that took place in Russia. And we all know the results of it in time. Socialism, Marx, communism. But in the of the three characters, the one who was most tormented in some ways was Ivan. Remember those long sections on the on the uh, Grand Inquisitor, and that anguished cry of pity that um, Ivan made when he was when he was talking about the horrible um, killings that people were making, putting kids on skewers and skewering babies and the question of whether or not he would be willing to kill one child if it meant rescuing all the others. Those are some of the tormenting questions in, in Brothers Karamazov. But what motivated um, Ivan was this pity, his compassion for the suffering in the world. He wanted to get rid of it. And you remember the, uh, the, the Brothers Karamazov and the, and the reworking of the Three Temptations of Christ. Um, what was it? Miracles? Authority. What were the th the? Um, remember that Christ had to answer all of those. Um, what's it called? Sorry, somebody help me here. Mystery miracles. Mystery miracles. What was the? Um, hmm. What are you talking about? The three temptations of Christ. The, you know, being offered the bread and then throwing off the tower and wanting control. What? And then worship the devil. 
Yeah, the, in, in the face of those mysteries and the authority, remember the, the people, the world, constantly chose what Dostoevsky presented as the church, that it took all those off people because they did not want to deal with mystery or um, miracles or authority. But that was it, mystery, miracles, and authority. Rather than deal with any of those, they, they surrendered their freedom to have comfort, security, and some sense of control. They didn't want to lose control of things. That was, that was at the heart of the Grand, Grand Inquisitor section. Raber is, a, is, a, is another modern type like that. If, if, and we'll, we'll come across some of the passages. You know that everything he did was in the interest of getting rid of those things. Security, control, rational explanations. Where anything existed outside of that, he suffered and grieved. His whole attitude towards the world was um, to have rational control over it. To make it fit the way he wanted so that everything that's going on with old tar water and young tar water is violently attacking that way of looking at things. It goes right to the heart of that, the title, the violent bear it away. Does the violent bear it away refer to Raber, doing violence against the kingdom, or does it refer to tar water, both tar waters and what they do? So there are those, um, there are those connections with the brothers that I think are pretty explicit. Um, one of the one of the questions that I I'm not sure that we'll get to it tonight, but I want to put it out there. You remember that when we at the end of part one, Tarwater had just burned down Powder Hedge, Powder. Um, what's the Powderhead? Powderhead, yeah, um, and was fleeing to the city, and he got picked up by that truck driver Minx. Meeks, and that was a transition from Powderhead to the city. After he, after what happens with Bishop, I don't want to give it away, but I'm, I'm assuming you all read it, um, he sets off again to return to Powderhead, and once again he's picked up by a driver. But there are two drivers in this case, so we've got a transition, the first transition is from Powderhead to the city, the last transition from part two to three is from the city back to Powderhead. Why does O'Connor handle it the way she does? And I want to be explicit about this because we've got to come to it um, before we end tonight. Um, at the end of part two, we get the scene of Bishop drowning from Raber's point of view, because remember, part two is by and large from Raber's perspective. Raber goes to Powderhead, he regrets it, he comes back, he's going to give young Tarwater an ultimatum, tell him to straighten up or he's going to leave. Tarwater takes Bishop out, and Raber lets them go. He falls asleep. He watches through the window. At one point, he falls asleep, and the moon comes down, and it's dark, and he goes to the window in fear, afraid to admit what's going on. Um, and then he realizes what's going on, that the Tarwater is killing his son. And you know that as, even though Raber wanted to kill Bishop, he also recognized that without Bishop, his life was over. He needed him that badly. So at that window scene, he's aware that the boy is dying. That's all we get. We don't get a description of it. In part three, when part three opens, Tarwater's picked up by a truck driver. He's on his way back to Powderhead, and we get a description of the death of Bishop. Why does she handle it that way? 
and how does this truck driver differ from the first one? So those are things I just would like everybody to hold on because they, they go to the action from Powderhead to the city, from the city back, and how the book ends with Tarwater setting out for the city um, with a new vision of things that he's never had in his life before. That's, if I can summarize it, that in a sense is the action. But tonight I'd like you just to hold on to that question. Why does O'Connor handle that death scene the way she does? Is all that clear? What's in conflict are two worldviews that cannot resolve. Cannot. One of them rests on the assumption that man can save himself. He needs no savior. Raber's clear in that. He can be born again. All he has to do is accept these scientific models and he can correct himself. He can get rid of all of his um, compulsions. The other one says that only Christ can save us. The first one says, let the dead bury the dead, or let the dead go. There's nothing to do about them. The other one says, Christ raised people from the death. The death is not the end of things. So one of them says, be born again. The other one says, be born again. The other one, one says, you can be your own savior. The other one says, there's a savior, but it's not you. So it's interesting to see the, the two line up. They cannot reconcile. One of them denies God. One of them says the basis of everything is God. So this is the basic conflict of the work, if I can put it that way. Let me start, because I'd like to go to those scenes, but any, any, any questions before we go to those two scenes or questions on what we're doing, why and what's going on? And Mark, put that remote away. You put that remote control away. <laughs> there will be no clicking off here. Put that remote away. Any questions, you guys, or just about the overall action and some of the questions that I'm putting out? One of the great ironies of the book, and it seems to me they're just beautiful ironies, Raber keeps taking, in fact, let me put it to you, one of the positions that Raber takes is he can cure himself. He keeps saying, I had to do a hard thing. I took it on. I did it. Look what I did. I made myself normal. You can make yourself normal too. I fixed myself. You can fix yourself. You don't need a savior. Be your own savior. These are quotes, direct quotes. I'm not glossing anything or, or dressing over things. What's the irony to all that? I'm normal. You can be normal. You can be born again. I was born again. I've got all the answers. I'll help you become normal. What are the ironies to all that? It's not very normal. <laughs> Fred, can you flesh it out? Give some examples. What comes to your mind when you... Go ahead. He mutes off, Fred. Sorry. There. Um, I think we talked a little bit about it last week and just some of his behavior. I mean, he's following the boy down the street. He's got his pajama bottoms on and no shoes or socks. And he's, he thinks he's the normal one. You know? yeah. and he's, he's, he's chasing this boy all around the street and, and he's constantly rationalizing everything 
Um, in fact, I think one of the reasons the boy constantly pulls his hat down oh. is he's trying to keep Reamer out of his head. <laughs> That's uh, interesting, yeah. So for me, the irony is he's the exact opposite of what he thinks he is. Yeah, yeah. We can all see it. Yeah. Barbara, can you, I mean, I, I loved your description a while ago. I, I can't remember, but it's like you said the wolves are they're always there. Can you recall any scenes with Raybird that that illustrate what you're talking about that you know the thought is relentless what's going on in his head um, can you recall any examples that 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 support what Fred is saying that well I can't think of any examples I just know it's that the sensitivity that you have for a character in a book if you're reading and feeling what they're feeling was that he just, it seemed hopeless. He just keeps going and it's more and more hopeless. Yeah. Tracy, can you, anything come to mind? You mean like examples of the, from the book about this irony? Yeah, that, that he, he keeps presenting himself as being normal, an example of hope for Raber, that if Raber will, or sorry, if Tape, Tarwater will just um, go along with him. He'll be able to straighten him out and make him normal and fit in, and he'll be okay. Examples of, of I mean, Fred said, I mean, was right on that he's really the opposite of anything normal, whatever normal means in this book. But <clears throat> can you do it? No, I think Fred's description of him running down the street barefooted with his pajama top on but his pants over his pajama bottoms and the kids saying what they said about you know hey ho forgot yeah. and then the woman at the lodge watches him go up the stairs and realizes that he has on one brown sock so and right right and yeah good example I mean another one might be that when he's Raver's constantly trying to feed the kid. In fact, you know, he took him out literally every night out to eat, and, and, he, and he treated him to all different kinds of things, thinking that, you know, I'm going to impress the kid, you know, I'm going to win him over, you know, and then I'm, then I'm going to fix it. And, all the, and, and the kid hardly ever eats anything, because what he's looking for yeah. is, is, is not right. physical food. In fact, he eats a little bit and he winds up throwing it up. Right. Right. Uh, so it's just another example of where, you know, he he thinks he's fixing things, but you know he, he doesn't have a clue. Yeah. You know, one of the one of the I remember making this comment when we were doing Brothers Karamazov that that at these moments in history when you when these radical paradigm shifts take place as they did in the 16th century with the Copernicus and with the Protestant Revolution, once these paradigm shifts take place, human beings are forced to question their assumptions, the ground you stand on. And it seems to me one of the things that we I think we experienced in Brothers is that Russia was facing that in the 19th century. That if you lose your sense of the ground that you stand on, to what do you turn? What are your frames of reference for behavior? I remember trying to make that point very strongly with Fyodor. Um, and I used the example of Manipian satire that um, 
sometimes you have to present a fractured view of the world in order to cut through everything that's familiar the way that we think it is or should be or ought to be. Um, where's that going? Um, Raber is that kind of man. I mean, he's so modern in that way. He's got all these theories. Let me, let me put it different. If you listen to Raber, you have a sense of a man who's absolutely assured about what he's going to do. If I do this, if this is the problem, this is how you fix it. That's the mindset he brings to everything. And yet everything he does is twisted and contorted. I'm going to do this. Um, and, and he keeps going back and forth on the issue. He can't, There's no authority on which he can rest. Where will he go? He keeps saying these are the authorities, and yet everything he, everything he does makes clear he doesn't fit the model of those. He says, I'm finally at the end, finally at the end, before he loses bishop, he says, I'm done. I'm done with it. I'm going to give him an ultimatum. He's either going to do things this way, or I want him gone. And his ultimate conclusion was, I want to get rid of him, because he knew that no matter what he did, he could never make him fit what he wanted him to be. So it's a tortured modern soul acting as if these modern theories would give somebody certainty when so often what they do is leave somebody in unrest. On the other side, you've got a certainty with Christ. There cannot be any question about him. He's God. He, he left us with problems, um, but, but there's no question about his ground. He's the ultimate ground of everything. And it wasn't just God the Father. It was, it was the Son coming down to offer human salvation. So there's whatever problems he presented us with by what he did, his ground is unshakable. So you've got these two different kinds of mindsets in conflict with each other and the ironies that come out of them. Let's go to the Carmody episode. Um, I, I want to look at this more closely. We started it last week, but I'd like to go back to it. If you can go to... Um, I think it's 3, 8... Um, hold on. Yeah, 378. 378. This, to me, is the middle climax of you can call it the rising action the, the point at which the climax is uh, is rising to its pitch 378 Raber has been following Tarwater through the streets and they come to this place and um, he he reads the sign outside on a banner unless she be born again you can say that that's the central theme of the whole work, unless you're born again in baptism. That's the creative intuition. It's the governing intuition of the whole work. At the bottom of 378, a door on the other side of it opened onto a stage. There in a man, bright blue suit, was standing in a spotlight, leading a hymn. It's like a theater. It's like a theatrical, magical show, but it's Christian. 379. Friends, he said, the time has come, the time we've all been waiting for this evening. Jesus said, suffer the little children. He knew that it would be the little children who would call others to him. Maybe he knew friends. Maybe he had a, maybe he had a hunch. Raber listened. Friends, the preacher said, Lucette 
has traveled the world over telling people about Jesus. She's been to India. He covers all the things. Now, just at that moment, when Raber's looking at what's in front of this, this theatrical sort of revival present, this inspirational moment, he starts recalling that episode when his father came to get him. And my question will be, why did O'Connor juxtapose those two the way she has? Let me read through it. Another child exploited, Raber thought furiously. It was the thought of a child's mind warped, of a child led away from reality that always enraged him, bringing back to him his own childhood seduction. So all of us want happiness. We grew up with all these sense of disorders in our lives and wishing we could correct them and turning to the world for whatever help it offers, and this is where it's bringing us. Glaring at the spotlight, he saw the man there in a blur, which he looked through down the length of his life until what confronted him were the old man's fish-color eyes. He saw himself taking offered hand and innocently walking out of his own yard, innocently walking into six or seven years of unreality. Any other child would have thrown off the spell in a week. He's disgusted at what happened. Go down. He and his uncle sat on the step of the house at Powderhead, watching his father emerge from the woods and sight them across the field. His uncle leaned forward, squinting, his hand cupped over his eyes, and he sat with his hands clenched between his knees, his heart threshing from side to side as his father moved closer and closer. Now, as he, Lucette's going to come up in a second. She's being introduced, and she will give this in, very inspirational talk, but it's overlaid, it's juxtaposed simultaneously, it, it's presented with this remembrance of his father coming to get him. Lucette travels with her mother and daddy, and I want you to meet them because the mother and daddy have to be unselfish to share their only child with the world, the preacher said. Here they are, friends, Mr. and Mrs. Carmody. So a man moves into the light. Um, and um, Raber is back at Powderhead again. A figure approaching, he, let, he had let himself imagine that field had an undertow, it's a, const, it's a repeated image, this undertow pulling him, that would drag his, his father backwards and suck him under. But he came on inexorably, only stopping every now and then to put a finger in his shoe and push out a clot of dirt. He's going to take me back with him, he said. Back with him where, his uncle growled. He ain't got any place to take you back to. He can't take me back with him. Know where you were before. He can't take me back to town. He's asking. I never said nothing about town, his uncle said. He saw vaguely that the man in the spotlight had sat down. Now the mother comes up. Um, we're back in Powderhead again. He would have raced along the path familiar to him then and sliding and slipping over the waxy pine needles. He would have run down and down until he reached the thicket. Imagine escaping his dad. Um, he could see the line of his father's mouth as he's approaching, the line that had gone past the point of exasperation, past the point of loud wrath to a kind of stoked rage that would feed him for months. While the woman evangelist, so juxtapose again, father's getting closer, we're back at the stage. Um, while the woman evangelist, tall and rawbone, was speaking of the hardship she'd endure, he watched his father as he reached the edge of the yard and stepped onto the packed dirt his face slick pink from the exertion of crossing a field. Go down. 
he said his mother wants him back, Mason. I don't know why, for my part, you could have you could have him. But you now she is, a drunken whore, his uncle growled. Your sister, not mine, his father said, and then said, All right, boy, snap it up. So this is the father saying she wants him back, I don't know why. I mean you can't express more contempt of a child on the part of a father than that. Explain in a high reedy voice the exact reason he could not go back. The boy, I've been born again. Great, his father said. Great. He took a step forward and grabbed his arm and yanked him onto his feet. Glad you got him fixed up. There it is, fixed up. Straighten out. Glad you got him fixed up, Mason, he said. One bath more or less won't hurt the bugger. He had no chance to see his uncle's face. His father had already leapt up. So he's being taken away. For ten years I was a missionary in China, the woman was saying. You remember that she presents her daughter, go down. His father's face was suddenly very close to his own. Back to the real world, boy, he was saying. Back to the real world. And that's me and not him, see? The father's saying, I'm the real world. Tarwater's not. He belongs to an unreal world. Me and not him, and he heard himself screaming, it's him, him, him and not you. And I've been born again, and there's not a thing you can do about it. Christ in hell, his father said, believe it if you want who cares? You'll find out soon enough. So this is that period in which something has marked young Tarwater, right? Um, something happened there, leaving him with a feeling of having been born again. He will come back years later, um, or he'll even make an attempt and be rescued again, because he wants to be with the old man. It goes back to the woman describing their origins, um, and then the girl... Um, emerging and beginning to preach. On page 382, she says she's going to tell everybody the story of the world. I want to tell you to be ready. Most of all, she said, I want to tell you to be ready so that on the last day you will rise in the glory of the Lord. Raber's fury encompassed the parents, the preacher, all the idiots he could see who were sitting in front of the child. Parties to her degradation. She believed it. She was locked tight in it chained hand and foot exactly as he had been, exactly as only a child could be. He felt the taste of his own childhood pain laid again on his tongue. She goes on to say that God was angry with his people. Um, he wanted to save them. Three, um, 383. Trevor, she was like one of those birds blinded to make it sing more sweetly. Her voice had the tone of a glass bell. Her pity encompassed all exploited children. What moves him more than anything, what moved um, Ivan, what moved Patroclus, what moved Dante at the beginning of the Inferno was pity, not love, pity. Um, remember the woman, the, um, Lucette keeps looking back and forth, um, down at bottom 383, you and I know, she said, turning again, what the world hoped then, when um, Christ had to flee. The world hoped old Herod would slay the right child. The word hoped old Herod wouldn't waste those children, but he wasted them. He didn't get the right one. Jesus grew up and raised the dead. Let me stop in that for a moment. What does that paragraph mean? Love you people. The world knows in its heart the same as you know in your hearts and I know in my heart. The world said love cuts like the cold wind and the wind, the will of God as the winter. Remember, he, this is not a nice palm set, you know, beach setting. He came in the middle of winter. 
Where is the summer will of God? Where the green seasons? Where is this nice bourgeois world that we all long for? They had to flee to Egypt. And then she says, You and I know what the world hoped then. The world hoped old Herod would slay the right child. The world hoped old Herod wouldn't waste those children, but he wasted them. He didn't get the right one. Jesus grew up and raised the dead. Somebody explain that passage. Give it a minute. Tracy, you got a thought on it? The thing that comes to mind, of course, is uh, what I think was it Caiaphas that said at the end of when they was persecuting or whatever, like putting, making a case for crucifying Jesus. You know, it was that one man should die rather than the rest of them. So that's the opposite of what Herod did. It's all I can think of. <laughs> Good. Anybody else? It's a really, uh, to me, it's, she's so good here. Um, anybody else? Do you have a thought, Doc? I think it's what she said, that the world hoped that he would get the right child, meaning the one that he was after. But what does that say about the world? What does the world want? This is taking us back to the Grand Inquisitor and Yvonne. What does the world want for for her for this passage to come up with you know in Rave You and I know then she said what the world hoped then the world hoped out here would slay the right child. What did the world want that they would have wanted that? Fred, go ahead. It just brings to mind something Jesus said that and and, and I don't remember exactly where, but he went through that he was going to break the world that he would bring uh, violence, if you will, you know, mother against daughter, father against son, that there was, there was going to be discord for those who chose his way. And I guess what, what you, what you kind of get the sense was, well, the world really didn't think they wanted that violence. And so they were, they were hoping, okay, get the right child so we don't, you know, we can continue living the way that we're living. They just, they, they didn't, they didn't get it. Yeah. And um, I guess in, in the book, you know, I, I kind of wonder if that was the last time Raber was truly happy was with the old man. Oh, yeah, yeah. And ever yeah. since, and when it, and, and he, there was something inside him that knew that, and and then his father drug him away. And my my guess is that's that's where his downfall began. Mm. And then you start rationalizing, and you get surrounded by this world that just wants to Boy. keep on keeping on. Yeah. You know, not very many people like change yeah. uh, or chaos in their life. You know they. You know, they just want to keep things going the way they're going. They're comfortable. Yep. Don't yep. don't mess with my comfort zone. Yeah. Yep. yep. And uh, anyway, that's that's kind of the thought I get from all that. Yeah. Just a a couple of thoughts to add on to it. Um, 
it reminds me of the of Ivan's Grand Inquisitor because remember the three things that the um, that the people refused was mystery, miracles, and authority because they wanted to be comfortable. They don't have to deal with mysteries or uncertainties or suffering. When the Jews were in the desert, <laughs> you know, after after they'd seen the Red Sea part it, when they were in the they wanted to go back. They said, "You took us out of our comfort." You know, they were griping because they wanted to return to the way things were. So, you're right on. I think I think the implication here is once again, it's that people choose a world of comfort where they don't have to make choices or trouble over things or suffer when the world seems to promise them that and ironically I mean particularly if you look at Raper that isn't what happens when people make those concessions to the world the last thing you can say about them is that they're content or happy <laughs> because the world can't give us that so I, I thought it was an amazing use of the word of, or to refer to the Herod episode the world hoped old Herod wouldn't waste those children, but he wasted them. Which, which says, this violence was committed against the kingdom. These kids were innocent. So that title, the violent buried away, it seems to me that's one of the finest illustrations of the meaning of that. Herod committed the violence, um, but it's the people who brought it on, by their, and they were innocents. It's not like they had a choice in the matter. But the amazing thing is that they stood for something Herod couldn't see. Um, I could go on, read, go on over to 384 just quickly. She, she keeps saying, uh, she says at the top of 384, leave the dead lie. That's what the people say. Leave the dead lie. They don't want to mess with being reborn or a God who will ask things of them. Leave the dead, they said. Listen, world, she cried, flinging up her arms to the cape flew out behind her. Jesus is coming. He's going on. It's a warning. Middle of 384. Raber saw himself fleeing with the child. Here's this bourgeois vision again. Raber saw himself fleeing with the child. He wants to rescue her. So some enclosed garden where he would teach her the truth, where he would gather all the exploited children of the world and let the sunshine flood their minds. If you don't know him now, you won't know him then. Listen to me, world. Listen to this warning. The two keep breaking in on each other, the girl and the memory. The holy word is in my mouth, she goes on. Um, Come away with me, um, he silently implored, and I'll teach you the truth. I'll save you, beautiful child. He will be the rescuer, not Christ. So once again, the choice is clear. Whether we turn to the world for a savior, that it will save, make us normal, or Christ. Her eyes still fixed in him, she cried, I've seen the Lord in a tree of fire. In a moment, you know, she'll say, I've seen a damned soul. Let me stop for a moment. Um, she looks right at him and says, I see a damned soul, um, because everything about Raver is making clear. I mean, I, 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 I like the way you set it up. You know, going back to that time in his childhood when the old man was with him and his whole life has been in an effort to deny him. But let me stop for a moment on this scene. Why does O'Connor juxtapose those two? It, it's, it's, I think, powerful in its drama. Raber's watching this child make a case for Christ. He hates it. He hates the boy going there, Tarwater, young Tarwater. But the, the inspirational talk of Lucette is juxtaposed as if the two overlap or coexist simultaneously. 
And it gets more and more intense. The father starts out in the field, he crosses the field, he picks the boy up. Step by step by step, it gets deeper and deeper as she approaches the truth. Why does she do that that way? It's a powerful scene. What's the point of putting them together like that? Francis, what's your thought? I'm sure that's what she wants. What do you got? Because I know there's something there. I know it. No. I actually haven't gotten to read the book. Fred read it first. We only had one copy. <laughs> Anybody? Karen, do you have a thought on this? Well, it seems like Raven's self mutilation. Sorry, Karen, your voice came in and out. Or... So it seems like it's leading us through um, Raven's self realization of what has happened to him. The more he hears from this young lady, he relates it to his own life, and he gets drawn deeper and deeper into what she's saying. Yeah. Yes, for sure. Barbie, do you have your hand up? I didn't, but I. all of this seems to just be an illustration of the difference between the Christian and the contemporary. Um... And the way she does it, juxtaposing it, just is almost a line by line. You say this, I say this. Anyway, that's all I got. Tracy, what do you what do you have? What do you make of this? You know, it's almost like her truth. What you said that she, what you said as she gets to the truth with that uh, statement about Herod that that truth is his destiny. You know, that he becomes the people who say, it's better if just the one, um, I hope he gets the one child because I don't want to be bothered, you know, with all of this. But it's a destiny that, um, you know, the moment when his dad comes to get him but doesn't want him, you know, he can't, so he can't have this life that the uncle is offering, but he can't also have the life that the father offers. Like it puts him in a limbo. Um, uh, and so in some ways that may be why he's so com you know, so, uh, ironic and comical, you know, uh, and out of control. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. that's all I, yeah, that's yeah. all I can think of. Can anybody imagine, can anybody imagine young Tarwater growing up with his dad, his dad being the way he is? Wait. Sorry? Young Tarwater? Growing up with his dad. Yeah. Who's his, dead? His dad when his father came to get him. No, that's not that's not Tarwater, that's Raber. Oh, I'm sorry, Raber. Sorry. Sorry, Raber. Can you imagine yeah, sorry, can you imagine Raber growing up with his father when he gets him? It's probably why he keeps saying to about the boy, young Tarwater, that he wants him to know that he's wanted. He wants him to know that he's loved. 
Because he obviously wasn't either. Yeah, but look at the way he would love him and want him. I mean, the irony is just her start. Doc, what do you make of that scene, the way she juxtaposes it? What do you do with that? She's sincere the way Tarwater was sincere. She believes... The girl Lucette you're yes. talking about? Yes. She believes what Tarwater believed. Mm -hmm. So it's all the things he heard and the image of him as a boy being there, being glad to be there, and wanting to run away so that his father couldn't take him. Um, I, I understand why the memory came up. Any last thoughts? Barbie, your hand is up. Did you have something? Your hand is on the screen. Can you take that off or and somebody, Fred, your hand's still up or did you have a comment? I was just I was just gonna say one thing. It just seems to me like that particular point of the book is sort of climaxes O'Connor's point of the book. We, we see almost the futility of Raber's perspective at that moment, where we see him at, you know, probably his most exposed and how fruitless his pursuit of trying to rationalize everything is. And when we, we see that against, you know, what's, what's a pretty impressive performance by this young girl and her belief I guess for me it kind of seeing those two things together uh, sort of made me realize just how futile uh, Raver's effort was was going to be and to me it was kind of a turning point in the book mm -hmm. yeah I, I, I don't think I put this together quite well enough yet. I mean, it, it's still sort of burning in me. It's, it's such, I, I think it's just an amazingly ten, tense moment. I think there's also something to do, um, I don't know how to put this, um, the vulnerability of a child, um, the, the threat to a child from the outside world. And by the way, I'm, I, I don't want to lose this, so let me, let me come back to the. Fred, your comment a, a while ago about people wanting to go on, I can't remember how you put it, but going on, going on. When I was reading this, I thought, this is one of the most impressive illustrations of Plato's cave that I have ever read in the modern world. Because remember, in the, in the cave, you're convinced that what you see is real. So if, when you're looking at Raber at that point, you're looking at a young, a young boy who was made aware of something other than the world, but he spent most of his life in a world that formed him. So that's Plato's cave, and it dominates his life. I mean, he, he's convinced that that's the way it is, like somebody in Plato's cave. But the great irony is something's been given to him to make him question, and he won't, he won't question it. Remember, the, the condition for getting out of the cave is questioning it. And, and remember, in, in Plato's work, Elenctus, at the poorie moments, the confusion, the perplexity, that's the condition of going on. The people who want to stay comfortable and remain where they are, stay there. To come out of the cave is discomforting. You know, you have to ask these questions. There's no way out of the cave otherwise. So when I look at Raber here, 
He's one of the most tragically painful characters that I can recall in modern literature, stuck, not wanting, I mean, refusing to come out when, when something's been given to him to help him. He's just convinced. But to go back to the, the point that I started out to try to make is, it seems to me part of her point here is we carry our childhood with us. We can't escape. Here's this young girl. Raber wants to rescue her. Mistakenly take her to some sunlit beach as if that's going to save her life. She believes in Christ. We carry our human beings carry their childhood with them. And those traumas, whatever, whatever goes on that is put at risk by the world. Because once we enter the world, Dante's view is the same. We got the same thing in the Purgatorio and Hell. Um, you can either get trapped by the world and go in the world, or you can try to hold on to something original given each human being when he was created. That's Dante's description of the soul. We're not Protestant. In a Catholic world, we believe the soul is created good. It starts out good. All of its instinctive desires are good. It's when we start turning to the things of the world and wanting them too much, and we don't have curbs put on us, and if somebody's not helping us, that we can get trapped. So it seems to me one of the things that's going on is we're, this, this intense drama building up, you know, involving this young girl and Raber's memories of that childhood moment, the way they're juxtaposed make it obvious how important that moment was to Raber when his father came to get him. And he didn't, he didn't want to go. He said, I've been born again. And the man that we're looking at right now, a product of the world, buried it. But right now, I mean, I thought your way of putting it, right now, it seems to me we're seeing him at his most vulnerable, absolutely, he'll, he'll, he'll come out not wanting to talk. He's so furious. Um, most vulnerable, and yet more determined than ever to deny whatever the good was that existed between him and Old Horwater. I think there's some, something going on that has to do with childhood. Sorry, Doc, go ahead. The, um, he, when he looked at Lucette, he kept commenting on the mysterious connection that seemed to be between the two of them when she looked at him. Mm -hmm. And he says at some point, she was the only one who could understand him. And right then, she turns and says, I see a damned soul who can't hear the word of God. And so he thought there was this great connection and that she understood him. And it was just dashed. Yeah, well, it, the, yeah, the, do you see an irony in that or not? Is there an irony in that moment? It's an irony that he thought that there was something between them and that she understood him, meaning that he was the one who should be understood because he's right, when in fact... The irony is that she sees... She sees him for what he is. Yeah, damned. I mean, if we're, if we're to take her view, if we're to, you know... It's such an intense moment. Everything that's going on in the scene to, to, is, to me, um, overpowering it. What it does is move the plot forward um, while making us aware of this vulnerability that Raber once had as a kid, the influence of the old man, and, and by juxtaposing it with this young girl who's calling everybody to Christ. 
it just intensifies the importance of that moment in childhood. Um, and, and what, I mean, to go to, to your point, Tracy, what people do with it. Oh, you're here, and put it, put it even in, let me expand it. Everything that young Tarwater does until the very end of the book is in denial of his great uncle. He, like, like Graeber, he will, he will not admit anything good about his uncle. He burns the place, he's saying he's doing it for Raber, that he acts, Raber doesn't. Everything he does, he does in a spirit of defiance. So the, the, the plot is moving these two characters um, who, who in some ways are, couldn't be more at odds with each other, and yet who have this common quality, quality in common between them, this defiance, this refusal to let to, to give Christ this place or the place of prophecy. Fred, go ahead. You had a you had something. I just what does it say about fortune when you've got Raber who was kidnapped by the old man and only got to stay for what was it, four days or however long it was and and then got, you know, plucked back into the cave. And you've got Francis Tarwater as a young boy who was kidnapped, brought back to the old man. And uh, when Raber came to get him, he got his ear shot off, and he decided it wasn't worth the effort. <laughs> so one boy, one boy gets the chance to uh, to have the experience of wow, yeah, of and and yeah. one boy he almost does but doesn't. Yeah, 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 yeah. Are so, so saying anything about fortune in this mm -hmm. exercise? <laughs> There's no bad fortune. There's, yeah, I was going to say, we're going to put up a banner next week. No Boethius. No, for, for the next month, no Boethius. I didn't use the word Boethius. I know, I know. You were doing everything you could to get around it. <laughs> God, are you sneaky. Francis, we're praying for you. It's, no, it's a really good question, a troubling question. You know, what do you, you know, what, I, I don't know where to go with it. Let me, let me take us to this last passage because I want to be careful of our time. Can you all go to the end when, um, um, when Raber is getting more and more frustrated. Um, what chapter, Bob? Wait, Mark, I'm trying to find it. Um, more and more frustrated with Tarwater. He plans a trip to this lodge close to Powderhead with the idea of taking the boy there because, and this is so good, I mean it's just like modern psychology he believes that if he gets the boy there the trauma might um, shake him enough to to help him, Raber, succeed in his efforts to to, uh, what's the word I want, reconstruct uh, you know, to rehabilitate this, this lost soul um, but he goes himself, and when he approaches old Powderhead, he becomes undone himself and regrets going. So he goes back to the lodge. Um, Bishop is there with um, Raber, I mean uh, Tarwater, and then um, um, I think it's the beginning of chapter seven. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I don't want to. Well, I've got, I've got nine, but I'm because I want to go. Um, 
a number of things have happened that are important. I don't want to spend any time because I want to get to this one scene, but Raber makes the mistake of saying um, he can read him like a book, he can, he, he's just like the old man. All of those things are insulting to young Tarwater because he prides himself on defying the old man and doing what he wants to do. He's not going to be doing somebody else. He's not going to be serving up somebody else's grits. Um, um, I mean, just to give you an example of a of a of a line that's important, but they they run through this whole last part of the book. Um, the boys stared into his eyes, filled with the dull cast of nausea. The great dignity of man, his uncle said, is his ability to say, "I am born once more and no more." What I can see and do for myself and me, my fellow man in this life is all this will make me great. Um, the the events that I've just described take place. Um, there's this passage in, sorry, it's in 9, um, on 417 in this book. School teacher spoke slowly, picking his words as if you were looking at the steadiest stones to step on across a rushing stream. Until you get rid of this compulsion to baptize Bishop, you'll never take make any progress towards being a normal person. I said in the boat you were going to be a freak. I, should, I shouldn't have said that. I only meant you had the choice. I want you to see the choice. I want you to make the choice and not simply be driven by compulsion. It'll, that is, it's only a choice if he goes along with what he believes. You have to understand what it is that blocks you. I wonder if you're smart enough to take this in. It's not simple. Go down. Baptism is only an empty act, the school teacher said. If there's any way to be born again, it's a way that you accomplish yourself in understanding about yourself that you reach after a long time, perhaps a long effort. It's nothing you get from above by spilling a little water and a few words. You can imagine what the secular world would would think walking into a Catholic church when the preach the priest sanctifies the host and wine. They're gonna look at it and say, Are you kidding? That's a piece of bread and wine. What's the matter with you guys? You're superstitious. Or if you if they happened in on a baptism and watched a priest sprinkle water on a kid, they'd say, "Are you kidding? What are you doing? Sprinkling water on a child?" What you want to do is meaningless. So the easily solution would be simply to do it right here now. He says, "Go ahead and do it." Go down below four eighteen. There are certain laws that determine every man's conduct. The school teacher said, "You are no exception." This is where we started. The the scientific revolution in the 19th century maintained man was a product of laws over which he had no control. Or Freud, man had no free will and he was a product of these perverse sexual impulses. Those are laws in his character. It's always puzzling me. I mean, the, the assumption is if you understand them, you might be able to do something about them, but they're still in you. Um... At that point, um, remember, Raber took um, Tarwater's clothes and threw them in the lake when, when Tarwater got so angry that he swam ashore. He comes home, he's got these different clothes on, he listens to his uncle say these things, and then a little bit later he takes Bishop by the hand and the two walk out the door. And Raber watches, and the interesting change that takes place is Tarwater, if I remember correctly, has his hand on the child's shoulder. It's like 
he's become affectionate, and it actually makes Raybird twitch because he has this thought he does not want anybody to have control over that child but himself. That was um, page 419. I, and I will not permit that, he said. If anyone controlled Bishop, it would be himself. He put his money on the table under the salt shaker and went out after them. This is when the, the um, Tarwater and Bishop go out. They go to the boat and they go out to the middle of the lake. And Raber is content to watch them go out, thinking nothing about it. Um, he's quiet. He's finally decided that he's going to let go of tar, tar water. Page 420. Um, he began to consider the possibility of his leaving of his own accord. And after a moment, he knew that this was actually what he wanted him to do. He no longer felt any challenge to rehabilitate him. All he wanted now was to get rid of him. He lets the two of them go out. He falls asleep. He wakes up, gone to the window another time, and then darkness comes. And this is what happens, 422. The stillness disturbed him. He turned the hearing aid on. At once his head buzzed with a steady drone of crickets and tree, tree frogs. He searched for the boat in the darkness and could see nothing. He waited expectantly. Then an instant before the cataclysm, he grabbed the metal box of the hearing aid as if it were clawing his heart. The quiet was broken by an unmistakable bellow. He hears um, Bishop cry out. He did not move. He remained absolutely still, wooden, expressionless. Go down. The machine made the sound seem to come from inside him as if something in him were tearing itself free. Anybody want to comment on that moment? That thought? Doc? Oh, it's the very end. It's the last page and on the um, end of the chapter nine. It's the last chapter of, of part two. It, the, the pages line up, Doc. It's the it's the next to the last. He did not move. He remained absolutely still. Sheen made the sound seem to come from inside him, as if something in him were tearing itself free. Fred, you have a thought about that? Remember, he's wanted to kill Bishop, but he also knows that if he loses Bishop, in a sense, he loses himself. It, it seems to me that there's no, there's no effort on his part to do anything about what he knows is about to happen. And I, I think at, at this point, he's for lack of a better phrase, completely lost his soul. Um, Bishop was kind of the last hope for him to find some kind of retribution because he did, you know, he, he loved the boy, but he kept pushing that love away. Yeah. I mean, for me, Bishop is, is kind of a, a personification of Christ's love in this story. Oh. And the... Oh. the, the the drawing of Christ that it has on Tarwater and the drawing that he has on Raber. And it seems to me at this point, he's just completely disconnected. Yeah. You know, the, the, the struggle has become too much for him and he's just, he's, he's given it up. Doc, you have a thought, anything? The machine made the sound seem to come from inside him. 
as if something in him were tearing itself free. He clenched his teeth, the muscles in his face contracted and revealed lines of pain beneath harder than bone. He set his jaw, no cry must escape him. The one thing he knew, the one thing he was certain of, was that no cry must escape him. Why? Anybody? I, I think once again, I'm just, it's a question for me. Did you have a thought, Fred? Well, I, I think to me, if, if he were to, to cry, it would express an, an emotion. Yep. His love. That, yep. That, that, exactly. Yep. And, he, and he just, it was his final pushing it away. Yep. Uh, the bellow rose and fell, then it blared out one last time, rising out of its own momentum as if it were escaping f finally after centuries of waiting into silence. The, the beating no night noises closed in again. Um, he go down. He stared out over the empty still pond of the dark wood that surrounded it. The boy would be moving off through it to meet his appalling destiny. He knew with an instinct as sure as the dull mechanical beat of his heart that he had baptized the child even as he drowned him, that he was headed for everything the old man had prepared him for, that he moved off now through the black forest towards a violent encounter with his fate. Go down, he stood waiting for the raging pain, the intolerable hurt that was his due to begin so that he could ignore it. But he continued to feel nothing. He stood light-headed at the window and it was not until he realized there would be no pain that he collapsed. Now I want to just take a minute um, um, and, and end with a few minutes discussing this point. You know that that ends the, the middle section, and the middle section was told largely from Raber's point of view. The third section we return to Tarwater, and he's returning to Powderhead, and he picks up a ride. You'll get two rides. The, um, the first one is this guy, and then the second one, I, I, we're not going to have time, so we'll pick it up next week. But we're in the car, and this guy keeps pushing him to talk. Now, you know that, you know that I, I, don't, I try not to take anything for granted, because I, I just think one of the greatest things my one of my teachers taught is don't overlook the obvious. You don't ever overlook the obvious. Meeks was a driver peculiar to himself. Remember that he he made it clear that he made his business on learning to use love, the loves of people. That's why he prospered. He, he could manipulate them, use their loves. We've got two more drivers here, and both are, are taking Ray Burr, I mean uh, Tarwater, back to Powderhead. Why does O'Connor, I don't want to take this up right now, but I want to leave the question so we can pick it up next week. Why, why does O'Connor use this driver? What does he symbolize? Meeks showed us a transition to the city, that the city is going to be a place in which people use love to their advantage. That's what defines the city. We got that from St. Augustine thousands of years ago. People use loves to get ahead. Here we've got a, um, a truck driver again, and he keeps harping on young Tarwater and saying, talk, keep me awake. I'm, I'm not going to give you anything. If you think you, I'm going to give you something for free, I'm not. Keep me alive. Why does she use this truck driver? What does he do? I, I don't want to answer, but just keep that in your mind. What I want to go to is this passage on 428, where Tarwater is 
um, anxious, troubled. He's speaking in clip sentences. He, he can't be coherent. It's like something's happened and the that stubborn rock that he's always been has crumbled in some ways. He's shaken. And he says in 428, it was an accident. I didn't mean to, he said breathlessly. Then in a calmer voice he said, the words just came out of themselves, but it don't mean nothing. You can't be born again. I only meant to drown him, the boy said. You're only born once. He's taking Raber's position, and for the next couple of pages, he's almost complimenting Raber and saying Raber was knowledgeable. He knew a lot. He did a lot for me. It's as if he, the stubbornness gone, he can look favorably on his uncle now. But then we come to the description of the death. Um, oh, sorry. Where'd... In the, the cab of this truck driver, he's recalling what had just taken place. Okay. On 4.31, we're now, in retrospect, being given a description of what happened that we saw through Raber's eyes. And you know that Raber didn't see anything. It was nothing but darkness, but he knew what happened. So from Raber's point of view, we just get a, the bellow, a darkness, and he knows exactly what took place. But now we're getting it from Tarwater, 4.31 at the bottom. The boy edged the boat towards a dark clump of bushes and tied it. Then he removed his shoes, put the contents of his pockets into his hat, put the hat into one shoe, while all the time the gray eyes were fixed on him as if they were waiting serenely for a struggle already determined. The violet eyes fixed on him also waited with a um, barely concentrated impatience. And the stranger returns. And we haven't been hearing that stranger for a while, but now... In this moment that took place, or the scene that took place a few moments before, the stranger reappears. This is no time to dwaddle, his mentor said. Once it's done, it's done forever. The water slid out from the bank like a broad black tongue. He claimed out of the boat and stood still, feeling the mud between his toes and the wet clinging around his legs. The sky was dotted with fixed tranquil eyes, like the spread tail of some celestial night bird. While he stood there gazing for a moment lost, the child in the boat stood up, caught him around the neck, and climbed onto his back. He clung there like a large crab to a twig, and the startled boy felt himself sinking backwards into the water as if the whole bank were pulling him down. Sitting upright and rigid in the cab of the truck, his muscles began to jerk, his arms flailed, his mouth opened to make way for cries that would not come. His pale face twitched and grimaced. He might have been Jonah clinging wildly to the whale's tongue. That's pretty much as much as we get, so let me stop there. Why does O'Connor present that death scene that way? Um, keep that passage in front of you for a second if you can. We didn't get it from Raber's perspective. Now we're getting it from Tarwater's, and he's recalling it. He can't speak. Raber couldn't speak can't speak, and we're getting a picture of the boy on his back sliding down, sort of pulling him back into the water, and we know 
that he drowns and we know from his words to the truck driver th that I just read that it was an accident that he met hold on let me what page was that on oh, my glasses sorry he says it was it was an accident I didn't mean to then a calmer voice in a convoy said the words just come out of themselves but it don't mean nothing you can't be born again I only meant to drown him, the boy said. You're only born once. They were just some words that run out of my mouth and spilled in the water. So my question is, why does O'Connor present the death scene the way that she does? Um, we don't get it from Raver. We get it from Tarwater and after the, after the fact. Just kidding. Why does she do that? Karen, you have a thought? We never know where we're going to find you in the Bay Bridge or out in a country setting or... Well, so my first thought is that's the way she's done the whole story. So to go in a flashback isn't unusual. Um... But it's like the boy is reluctantly being pulled along. He's, he still is almost resisting what's happening, but he just can't quite do it. You're talking about tar water? Yes. Yeah. And then I think when, when he's looking back, it's um, striking him on what he's done. Yeah. And that's why he's, I think it says he's shaking and twitching and yeah. his, his body's rigid as people um, pass by the car. Yeah. I know when I read it, the first part where um, Raber was commenting on it, mm -hmm. my first thought was, no, that can't be. He didn't really drown. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm going to read the next chapter and that's going to be a mistake. <laughs> that's the way he interpreted it, but no, that didn't happen. I'm glad to hear that. I mean, because I've read it. So, but I'm really glad, because because it seems to me that's part of her genius that you, the first time you read it, you don't know, you know. And um, anyway, go. Ahead. Anybody else? What's? I think it was. Can, can you hear Doc? Can you guys hear Suzanne? I was struck as I was reading it through. He said, "I drowned a boy." Um, and then you go down and he says, it was an accident. I didn't mean to. He's not talking about the drowning. Right. He's talking about the baptism. Right. But what, why, Doc, why does she do it this way? I mean, what is, what's to gain that... see Raber's description of it, what you're getting is Raber. It's not even, I mean, you sort of figure out what it is, but it's not clear mm -hmm. what happened. Mm -hmm. You're just getting Raber's reaction mm -hmm. to it. And here, you're getting Tarwater's reaction. Yeah. You're still not getting a clear picture. Yeah. 
Anybody else? Where are the lines where he said um, he's sh he's shaking and? Well, my pages are different, Robert. I can give you the. No, don't. It's the peer gap. But anybody else on this moment? Um, Fred, go ahead. I, the only the thing that comes to mind is you really see the torment that's going on inside Tarwater. I mean, he's he's begun to make the final struggle, I think, with the decision to, you know, not follow the old man's chosen pathway for him. And you can see going on in his mind. And I think I think Suzanne's point is, is a really good one as we're going through that process with him. And he says, I didn't mean to. The first thought that comes to your mind is he didn't mean to drown the boy. And then he makes it clear that, you know, he, he, he doesn't really seem to be particularly perturbed about drowning the boy. Right. He's perturbed about the fact that right. he, right. you know, he uh, unwillingly baptized the boy at the final moment. So I think we really see that that conflict that's going on in his mind, and he's he's beginning to make the the turn, and then the next event in his life completes that that turn. Anybody else? Tracy, any thoughts about this? The it's interesting. Sorry, go ahead, Doug. The other thing that struck me when I read it was um, the description um, in the in the truck um, when he's flailing around and right. um, says his pale face twitched and grimaced. He might have been Jonah clinging wildly to the whale's tongue. Yeah, he's been looking for a sign. He's been looking for something that <laughs> says he's a prophet. Yeah. You know, this question about fortune too, Fred, I'm, um, I, I can't miss this because it's, it's sort of, well, you know, it, it seems to me one of the great ironies of the book is that everything that's happened between the two, between Raber and Tarwater, has brought us to this point. We're left in Raber's mind, so we're inside the soul of a person who's done everything he can to deny love, what he's done. He won't let out a cry. He collapses. Um, the, um, there's no pain. It's almost like he's turned to a machine. It, it's like looking at somebody in Dante's Helm. When we get it from Tarwater, it's very different. And we're getting a shock and a surprise. And I, and I think what Doc is saying is true about the, the sign from Jonah. The other interesting thing about this scene is how Boethian it is. Um, because here's... Here the young boy is finally carrying out what he... Because you know that he, he prides himself in being better than Raber because he said... I mean, the, the implicit criticism is, you're a modern. You spend your life in your head. You just think about things. I do things. So he had no qualms about killing the boy. He was doing what the uncle wanted him to do. Um, but, but ironically, in doing that, he's carrying out God's will. Um, I mean, it's, it, it's a violent act against Raber. It's a saving act for the boy, according to a Christian world. Um, so from one perspective, from Raber's perspective, it's, it's a, 
mean, the, the last description of him is almost soulless. Um, a man without a soul. He just he will not let a cry come out. He stood lightheaded at the window, and it um, it was not until he realized there would be no pain. He couldn't feel it. Wouldn't feel it. He wouldn't let himself feel. And he collapses. Whereas with tar water, we've got this young boy realize, realizing that, that in doing the one thing that proved he could act, he was actually carrying out the old man's will. So it's a, it's a perfect illustration of, of uh, uh, Boethius saying, there is no bad fortune. God's at work turning things. Um, it's an amazing moment. Um, any questions or comments about what's going on at, at this point. Um, it brings Tarwater's story to a crisis because he's just done, he, in a sense, is given a perfection to everything he's claimed that he can act um, stubbornly against his um, great-uncle and um, stubbornly against Raber. He wasn't going to get into either one of them. He's going to be his own man, do whatever he wanted. But he's just realized now that it was an accident and that what he did um, fulfilled the old man's um, command to him, that he baptized the boy. So here in this last scene, in, in doing everything he could to defy God and Tarwater and Raber, old Tarwater and Raber, um, he did something that's left him shocked. So what's going to happen from this point to the end of the story? Um, we have to save that for next week. Let's, um, or I'll, I'll write you guys. Um, can we just um, plan tentatively? I'll wait, wait, if you can, the next couple of days, and I'll write in the next couple of days whether we'll meet next week or put it off a week. It may be better to meet next week so that we finish this, but I need to write you guys about what you'd like to do, whether we're going to, whether we're going to go on and do Tolkien or, you know, what, what, what you guys would like, because we're getting close to the end of things. Any comments about this, this, this point in the story? We're right next to the end. Um, the, from here to the end is, is very short. Lots is going to happen. A lot will happen. Um, but any comments or questions about... It's a wonderfully tight story. It's... Um, it's so dramatic, it's, it, it amazingly goes to the fundamental difference between somebody who's secular, who denies God, somebody who wants to deny God and finally ends up doing his will. Um, the ironies are pretty deep. Tracy, what's your response to all that's happened, all that's just happened up to this point? I don't know yet. I finished it, the book, but I don't. I have. I don't know yet. Yeah. Well, I, your... I knew that something bad was going to happen when they went out on the lake. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it and it did, but of course I couldn't help but remember that Rayburn did the same thing to Bishop to to, to drown him. Yeah. 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 And. Um, I guess it leaves it ambiguous whether um, whether Tarwater set out to do that 
he says I only meant to drown him, but we don't know when he got the idea. Or even if he did till it was over. Right. And it does he does describe it as if he was falling backwards from the weight of this right. child jumping on his right. back and it's right. possible that it started out as an accident. <laughs> yeah. No, no, I thought it was wonderful the way she did that. Because there is an ambiguity to it, you know, and, and it's gonna to lead Tarwater to say it was an accident. He's you know, he's shocked he's he's troubled with himself because he realizes he ended up doing something that wasn't a matter of his own will. And I, I, my own response to that scene that you're describing is exactly that, that she's so careful in showing Bishop jumps on his back and you have a sense that he's sliding down, but he's also pulling, the weight is pulling tar water. So, I mean, because they've been out there for hours. Um, and if he wanted to kill him, he could have done it before. I just think she handles this so well, you know, what she does. My, my, my question to, really at this point, so Tracy, did you enjoy it when you put it down? Yeah, immensely. Why? Uh, like I said, I think it just touched on nerves that are like, like anxiety. <laughs> you know, that it just, it was almost like a relief. And the only way I can describe this is I saw, um, like yesterday, I was so anxious, I felt like I was falling apart for some reason. And um, I had driven, I had driven about an hour and a half to meet some friends and back and just being out in the world, like on the freeway, after living in this small town, <laughs> you know, just like made me crazy. And, um, <laughs> God. and I, but, and then I attended a Zoom baby shower, bear with me, I'm going so no, with this. No, go quickly. ahead, I'm glad to hear it. And, I said something buffoonish, you know, like, cause I, it just made me so nervous, like being around all these people. <laughs> and, um, and I just felt like I was coming unglued. And then I watched a, we usually watch a movie on Sunday night and then we watched the uh, a trailer for this new movie on prime with uh, the lady that played in Fargo. Can't think of her. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's called Nomads or something. Have you, anyway, so it's about this woman who's, she doesn't have a home, but she's not. She doesn't see herself as homeless, and she's just out meeting people and living this kind of nomadic life. And tears just started streaming down my face because it made me feel comforted, like like being different is okay. I was going to say <laughs> what I I was going to say at home with other people. I remember Fred's. I mean, I years ago when somebody made some comment, and he said. I can't remember the words, but it was the it was that it made Fred feel that it was okay to be Fred. We were talking about Saint Thomas, and I don't Thomas. sorry. Didn't have to be Thomas. Didn't have to be Thomas. That there was something only he could do, and that every one of us should not feel odd in being different because every one of us is only only each one of us can do whatever it is each one of us is given to do. Um, so. Oh, that's so good. Yeah, that's so good. That's so good. And so just being not like, an, you know, life is, a, is a, it's not comfort. It's not, it's not comfort. It's not, and you're not in control. And, you know, and that feels cra like <laughs> crazy. And so when you read O'Connor, this book, it's like, it puts, it puts words and scenes to this crazy feeling. <laughs> 
so it's comforting. I'm glad. I think all of us have a measure of control. I mean, we have choices we could do things, but but not to realize that we're also in a mystery, that there are mysteries and miracles and, you know, that all that took place in the Grand Inquisitor. To me, just insane. Try to imagine somebody like Raver living in a world and living out what he does and 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 um, claiming that he's normal, you know, that, that he gets along, he's ordinary, you'll be like other people. <laughs> I mean, Fred put his finger on it, you know, an hour ago and he said, God, it's... Anyway, anybody else? Any last, any other last thoughts I enjoyed? Thanks for that, Tracy. Um, I'm glad you said it. I'm, I'm glad you enjoyed the... Anybody else? No? Okay. Um, you all have a good week. I will write in a day or so, and I'll give you guys a tentative list, and let me know what your thoughts are, if, you, if you're if you okay to go ahead, or what your preferences are, or you know what you want to do, and I'll, and I'll give you a heads up whether we're going to meet next Monday or wait a week, okay? Um, good to be with you guys again. This is a an amazing story to me, just an amazing story. Um, a lot in it. So, um, Tracy, I hope you don't have to go to the freeway too soon. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to be praying that you stay off the freeway because I don't want anything to happen to you. Um, anyway, you guys have, all of you have a good week. Okay. Keep us in your prayers, please. See you, see you shortly. Bye.